to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Kroenke. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. Unfortunately, he was not able to be with us for this episode, but he will be back next week. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens, things get messy. And we're starting to see things get messy now in the CRC. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. And don't forget, we've created a Patreon account, so if you like what we're doing and want to support us, you can find us at patreon.com backslash themessyreformation, or you can head to our website at themessyreformation.com and you'll find a link on the sidebar. That money will go toward audio equipment, website hosting, podcast hosting, and a future Messy Reformation conference, so stay tuned. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with Ed Gerber. Ed, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your church, and your family? Sure. Well, I'm born in Vancouver, British Columbia, youngest of five biological and two foster sisters. And baptized at New S Christian Reformed Church, so immersed in the Christian Reformed Church right from baptism, if you will. And uh, my dad, my dad was a furniture salesman. He owned a furniture store, and so I grew up going to his furniture store and help wipe tables, clean tables, put together furniture. My mother worked for Clearly Canadian Beverage Corporation in downtown Vancouver. I don't know if you remember that uh, beverage. Um, they had. Uh, Ah, they had, what did they start with? They started with Jolt Cola, actually, and then they went into the clear fizzy drinks and stuff. So grew up working there with my mom as well and drinking an awful lot of Canadian. So it was good. Um, I, in grade seven, this is a big part of my story. We, uh, I was part of the Christian school here, John Ox Christian School, and we had a, lo- a variety of local Christian schools. And we would meet for grade eight day at the local high school. There was only one Christian high school, essentially, in the lower mainland. There was really, yeah, there was one. There was two, one in Vancouver and one more in Surrey. And I went there to grade eight day and I saw a girl and went home and told my mom I met the girl I was going to marry. And so I started dating this girl in grade 11. And we went out for two and a half years and broke up for five. And then ended up, uh, I actually had a dream, gave her a call. We started working it out and um, have now been happily married for over 20 years. So oh, praise uh, God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, story of redemption. So uh, I'm lucky to have Michelle as my wife. And then we have four daughters. My oldest is 18. And then the next is 16, 14, and 13. And uh, they keep us very, very busy. I was educated at, uh, I started out at Douglas College, uh, just working on an undergraduate degree, wasn't sure I wanted to go, found that I was interested in philosophy, religion, theology, sociology, anthropology, thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But after the breakup with uh, Michelle, um, I got some real clarity. Um, I don't even know if you can call it clarity. It's more like God grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, totally made me do a 180 and said, you're mine and you will be mine, uh, to put it as Spurgeon would. And um 
then I felt a call to the ministry. So I spent three years at Douglas College, um, not full time. These are two years credit wise, and then ended up going in 1997 uh, to Calvin College. I actually was tree planting when I thought, you know what, I think I was tree planting up in a northern elevation block up by Prince George in British Columbia, way up in the sticks. And I thought, I think I want to go away to Calvin. And so I went to Calvin, 97, 98, 98, 99, swam competitively there. I had previously swum competitively in New Westminster for four years. So I had a six-year competitive swimming career. Calvin was uh, wonderful, but unbelievably expensive. It exhausted me of all my life savings, as it is doing now to most. Um, it was a good experience. And uh, I certainly, I think that was the first time in my life I actually had to learn how to study because it was incredibly demanding and it was definitely a step up from Douglas College. Finished my undergraduate at Calvin. Then I was trying to discern and went through a process of discernment, um, listening sessions with a whole variety of people to figure out where to go to seminary. The obvious choice was to go to Calvin at that time. and uh, um, But I was, I was close to Regent College. We lived in New West and here in Vancouver. And at that time, uh, Regent had kind of a star-studded faculty and was known for its really combining of the head and the heart. And so um, I decided to go to Regent and uh, was mightily blessed in going to Regent. Uh, J.I. Packer was there at the time. Eugene Peterson had just left, and so um, his courses were still available for us to take still Bruce Waltke was there, uh, in my opinion, one of the preeminent Old Testament theologians, biblical scholars of the day. Uh, Ricky Watts was there. Gordon Fee was there as well. So I got educated by some of these guys. Ian Proven, sometimes understated, but absolutely fantastic and now a good friend of mine. So I was educated at, uh, at Regent. And then I had at this time... Uh, some of you younger guys don't know this, but at that time, we still had to go for another two years. So I finished my MDiv at Regent and then did another two years at Calvin Theological Seminary. One year in class and then a full year internship, which I did in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, so I did my internship, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. By the way, you're you're at Faith Community Fellowship, eh? And I was at a Faith Community Fellowship for a 10-week summer stint uh, just oh, really? in 2001, just after I got married. So uh, anyways, that was good memories. So I spent a yeah. year in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We had our oldest daughter there. And then Michelle and I got a call, or I got a call to upstate New York, uh, Webster Christian Reformed Church, uh, Neil Planiga's first and only church, actually. So I uh, spent hmm. five years, had three more babies. All of our kids got American status, so they're all dual citizens. And uh, then I felt... I actually, I had the opportunity to do a PhD. Somebody said to me, you know what, if you can get in, I'll pay for it. This was in 2008. And I had never really that much thought about doing a PhD. I'd fantasized it about it a little bit, particularly in ministry, probably as a desire to escape difficult times. Sometimes you know how that can go. And anyway, somebody offered to pay my full ride uh, to do a PhD. So I got accepted um, into a program at the it was at the time Bangor University. Really, your decision if you want to do a PhD is you can do the American system, you're going to sit in classes again, or you can do the UK system, which is a research PhD. You're given a supervisor, and you can go to a school for cachet, then you're going to go to Oxford, or you're going to go to Cambridge, or you're going to go to uh, some other big name like that. 
or you decide um, to find the scholar who is going to best lead you in the discipline that you're looking at, i.e. the premier theologian, i.e. biblical or biblical scholar in that field. So I was directed to a woman called Catherine Williams, who is considered to be the premier Johannine scholar, because I was going to do a dissertation on the mm -hmm. Gospel of John, and she was enthusiastic about my topic. And so I got accepted. And this, so I quit my job um, at Webster or let them know. I gave them about, I think it was six months. I said, you know, I'm going to leave in six months. This gives you time. They got the search committee going and like that while I was still there. And uh, you remember 2008 was the big crash, the financial crash. So uh, the person who was going to help me out said, essentially, um, sorry, we're, you know, the people that I was relying on to fund this are saving seminaries and Christian schools. Uh, those who have a memory of that time, remember, it was really bad. It was really bad for many people. So I sent a letter to 300 of my closest family and friends, and it was a humbling thing to do, but the response was enough to put us in Wales for a year. And so we lived in Wales for a year as I undertook the first year uh, PhD studies and then came back to British Columbia. I finished it off over the next few years and then uh, ended up getting a call from Willoughby Church. I hadn't really desired to go back in the church. I wanted to get into the academy, but we would like to stay here. So there's Trinity Western University, there's Regent, but I feel if I'm going to go to Regent, I should probably have had some experience elsewhere for a while. So uh, yeah, ended up, I figured I'd be at Willoughby for three years or so. And now I've been there for, uh, I'm in my eighth year. Well. So, and we can, yeah, that's, 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 a yeah, for sure. Satellite picture. Well, it was interesting. I've been talking to a couple of pastors recently who've been uh, wrestling with or debating whether to enter into a PhD program and wondering if they can make that, make that uh, juggle with uh, staying in ministry, staying in full-time ministry and doing a PhD. And then there's been a conversation as well about um, is getting a PhD uh helpful for ministry in the church. So how would you answer those questions for people? One, people struggling with, can they balance a PhD program while continuing in full-time full ministry? And then do you think the PhD is beneficial for ministry in a local congregation? Well, with reference to the first question, I think you'd be robbing yourself to try and do a PhD and to undertake full-time ministry at the same time, because part of the joy is having the leisure to study and you would put yourself in such an unbelievable panic, it seems to me, and not be able to be myopic in the way that you need to be in order to undertake a PhD. Because you have to devote your life to a single, sometimes very narrow topic of focus. And mm -hmm. uh, so I would just advise against it. Is it possible? I suppose it's possible, though not in the time frame that a PhD is typically done when it's done full time. I couldn't imagine how somebody could do one and not neglect their family. Um, maybe, maybe other degrees. I think people could do a DMIN. I think you can do master's degrees and the like of that. But, um, at least in my experience, the rigor of a PhD requires a single minded focus on the topic at hand. And it's an absolute joy and delight to be able to be given that gift of leisure to study in that fashion. Yeah. So that would be part A. In terms of part B, I mean, I think it's a mixed bag in terms of my own experience. I remember Daryl Johnson from Regent College telling us that, a PhD will not help you be a better pastor. I don't know if that's entirely true. 
Um, it may be true in some ways. I do think there are times where as much as I'm trying to be as simple as possible, I'm not comprehended. And sometimes it's even using a word like ambiguous. And somebody will say to me, why do you use such big words? And I'm like, which big word did I use this time? Well, you said ambigu mm -hmm. ambiguous or, you know, it's something like that. And I'm like, okay, I seriously am out of touch in terms of what's a big word and what's not a big word. And that can be, you know, consequent to um, kind of advanced studies like that, although it doesn't necessarily have to be. On the other side of it, I think in terms, I, I think there's a particular calling of the pastor theologian in the church today. I think that um, it's the same kind of duty that we look to from our doctors in the church at the seminary. They, they are to be gatekeepers in a higher functioning way, in a sense. Like, I just think it's, it's a degree of responsibility that's placed upon us. If we've gone and we've studied in this fashion, then I think all the more we must uh, promote good orthodoxy in the church, confessional integrity, and we must defend against uh, heresy in the church. And um, this is a time, I think, where this is needed in a great way in the church because there are challenges on so many sides. And there is capitulation to a culture around us um, that is very hard to keep up with and to gain language around. And um, oftentimes, I think for, for a lot of us, it's just difficult to know how to respond to certain things today. So I think the doctors in the church need to embrace the challenges that the church is facing today and um, to speak into it. Yeah, amen. Well, whether was, it helps you be the, the you know a pastor on the ground, I don't know. I think my own. Some people love me, and other people find me too difficult. That's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah I always tell the story. <clears throat> um, I think I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard that Albert Einstein's um, best friend had an eighth grade education, and uh, and people asked him all the time, "Okay, how in the world can you guys have a friendship, and how can you have conversations?" And and Einstein responded and said you don't really understand it unless you can describe it to somebody who has an eighth grade education. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I've said, you know, so we do have the, there's always the temptation to get caught up in the academic world and, and speak kind of from the ivory tower and use that language. However, it's, I don't think it's a false dichotomy to say, therefore you should have less education so that you can explain it to the common folk. Rather than you should try to combine both of them, which is why I really, I still, um, I really love John Calvin's commentaries. I tell people this all the time. They're like my favorite commentaries because he's this super intellect. And yet everything he writes, everything he interprets is for the people, for the church. That was like the heart of the Reformation is combining this uh, idea of the, the pastor scholar or the pastor theologian. Yeah. I mean, my take on Calvin is he's, irreducibly doxological, which makes him highly readable. However, do you think that the average person in the pew uh, understand Calvin were he to preach one of his sermons in the, in the, uh, in the church today? Hmm. It'd be very interesting. Or if you took Chrysostom speaking for an hour or one of Augustine's sermons, I do think that we are in a context Text where we're dealing with attention spans that have been hijacked by um, social media. I mean, if I watch my daughters, 
um, to my chagrin, going through their Instagram account or whatever TikTok or these other things that we have tried to keep out of our house for a very long time, but we're losing the battle, right? You know what I'm talking about. But yep. they flick through in what? Two seconds? Three se- They can decide whether or not they want to watch this thing before I've even had a chance to adjust my focus. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, and there is a sense where I think we are creating a culture that is imagistic and or impressionistic and that our brain, the neuroplasticity of our brains is being rewired so that we are fundamentally moved by impressions. So what do you have, right? You have a commercial, 15 second commercial. It is not designed to teach you something about the product. It juxtaposes a Coca-Cola with a beautiful woman or a beautiful car with a, with a hunky man, or whatever it might be. It creates a social impression on you that I think arouses your mimetic desire. You want to copy the thing that you see. You want to be like that. Somehow you want to associate yourself with the beauty, and you, we all know you can get that through a Coca-Cola. So we are becoming post-logocentric. It's difficult and increasingly difficult for people to follow arguments today. I think this is a call upon pastors to be ever more vigilant in terms of helping people reason through things, right? If yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't know where you are with the human sexuality stuff. I can probably guess, right? Just knowing some of your friends, but mm-hmm. um, what's the logic that is driving our biblical human sexuality ethic today? And, and this, this is just societal logic, right? And not, now that I think is overtaking the church, it's if I'm committed, consenting, and loving, then it is ethically appropriate for me to engage regardless of a gender complement or other factors. Well, here's the problem is our logic comes home to roost, right? So... What what else can you fit into that logical substructure, that category, committed, consensual, and loving? Well, other things that people would want to reject can be fit into that logic. So at the end of the day, I think that as people of the word, as people of the logos, that logic is very important. Um, and so I think it's important for pastors to model, Not I'm not talking, you know, um, rationalizations or, you know, heady um, disconnect. Bring the head and the heart together. So, yes, mm-hmm. use touching stories, but um, we have to have kind of a substructure that is that, that an argument is actually made in a sermon. So I haven't read Kevin Van Hooser on this, but I know he's been arguing that uh, pastors today must be about the business of confessional preaching. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Amen. And well, and just to, I've, I've said uh, a couple of things based on what you just said. One of the things I've told people when, when, when I preach, so I had, I had one preaching professor in my undergraduate program who tried to tell us, you know, everybody's brains are being rewired, you know, short attention span. So you should never, you know, you should never preach over 10 minutes. <laughs> and I said, that's, that's ridiculous. Right. Um, and then another one kind of said, well, you know, every people are being wired for their emotions. So we should just preach to their emotions, you know, and all of that. And I said that that's just turns out to be fluffy, gooey nonsense, right? If you're just preaching to emotions, but, but some people kind of swing the other way and say, we never should touch the emotions. Right. And so, 
I've kind of always used the analogy when I preach, my goal is to kind of reach through their head and grab them by the heart, right? Like, so I want to, I want to make arguments. I want to make logical connections, but make them in such a way that they kind of grab hold of their emotions so that you're building on a foundation there. And uh, I think I've seen that to be fairly effective. And, and on top of that, you had mentioned helping people think through things, right. Or helping people make arguments. Yeah. Um, just this couple of weeks ago, I was a speaker for uh, classes, Wisconsin's youth winter retreat. So I had a whole bunch of teenagers and, and I uh, was talking about uh, the beautiful life in Christ. And, and I had to, because I just felt like I had to, I had to talk about sex. Right. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to talk to a whole bunch of teenagers about sex on a Saturday night. They're all going to be falling asleep and they're going to be like, the we've, we've heard this before. Um, but rather than just saying, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. I started laying out some of the stuff that's talked about in the sexuality report, some of the deep mm-hmm. dive that I've been going through and helping them explain what it was created for and, and how the world is hijacking it and, and started kind of laying that out. And that was the only session where I didn't have a kid like zoning off somewhere or dozing off because they were tired. Like I had all eyes locked on me and I was really surprised. And so I talked to a few kids afterwards and said, I literally thought you guys were just going to zone out on this one and be like, yeah, yeah, we've heard it all before. (laughs) And they said, but we haven't, we haven't heard any of that before. We've heard none of that before. Nobody talks like that. Everybody just says, stop doing it. And nobody tells us why we shouldn't do that. And I thought, okay, so laying out the argument there, helping them think through how sexuality has been designed and created to be used Mm -hmm. and how to use that rightly, um, it really resonated with them. That's right. To hear a positive vision of human sexuality. And I I think your colleague, Chris Gansky, preached a series um, a couple of years ago. Shoot, this was probably 2016, 17. Um, and he spent a year really trying to outline a positive vision of human sexuality. It was a phenomenal um, work on his part. And uh, I think he really served the church well in that regard. But you're right. We need to have a positive vision of human sexuality. And just to go back to the preaching for a second, too, I think our preaching needs to be driven out of a sense of a biblical theological anthropology. That is a vision of what the human is in their totality. And I think what we continually do is we deconstruct the person down into their component parts, i.e. they're a thinking brain, right? It's John Locke, I think, therefore I am. It's Freud, I feel, therefore I am. And the Christian response to these things is nefesh, it's uh, animate vitality, the soul, that we ought to treat the human being as the biopsychosocial reality that they are, the psychosomatic unity that they are. Now, how does that inform our preaching? Well, I think how it informs your preaching is you have to, as much as you are possible, appeal to every part of the human person, the thinking, feeling, um, and so on. So, uh, but I mean, it's not easy. And one, I do believe one needs to preach through their own personality as well. Uh, we, We got into the habit some years ago of preachers trying to imitate, say, Bill Hybels or trying to imitate, say, Tony Campolo. And uh, they gave up on their own authenticity. And I think that's a mistake as well. Be yourself in the pulpit and let the Holy Spirit um, use you just as he used Jeremiah as Jeremiah and Isaiah as Isaiah and so on and so forth. Amen. I went through a phase in my early youth ministry years where I tried to preach like Mark Driscoll. (laughs) 
until until somebody one of my youth leaders came up to me and they said you just look like a caged lion up there <laughs> you need to chill out and uh, it was pretty funny but it was a good you know we we have these moments where we see somebody and we think oh they're passionate right i love mark driscoll's passion so i wanted to be this passionate preacher and and uh it's kind of one of, it's a funny experience right kind of finding your your preaching voice and it takes a while i think you kind of imitate other people for a while and then eventually you kind of find your own groove yeah i think you're right yeah well being someone who's kind of grown up in the christian reformed church uh your whole life right do you say you're baptized in the christian reformed I was, church yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so what what are some of the things you've really appreciated about the christian reformed church or another way to say that are some of the strengths of the christian reformed church I may have been an outlier, but I appreciated from the youngest of ages getting catechized. Uh, We went through a regimen of catechesis at our church. We were taught by not only the pastors, but by various members in the body of Christ. We were taken all the way through uh, the Heidelberg Catechism um, and at least the Heidelberg Catechism, whether the other ones, I'm not exactly sure anymore, but uh, it served us well. I appreciated that. So there was a focus on the mind. Um, and I, I appreciated the community. There was a community of faithful givers at New West Church um, who really had a sense of our covenantal identity. So here's, here's one of the stories to leap ahead is when I um, wrote those 300 people to get uh, money to go do the Ph.D., we wrote essentially. We wrote back people that were we knew that would know us in churches that we had been to. So New West Church was one of them. One of the uh, members of that church, um, long time members of that church, responded, and uh, at the end of the day, they had given us fifteen thousand dollars. Wow! Because because they were there when I was baptized. I was their kid. That's powerful. Mm. I, That's that was powerful. utterly completely unexpected. And what's more is they did it very personally. They came to our house, they gave us a check, they asked us how we were doing, brought cookies for our kids, called Opa and Oma to our kids, you know, Grandma and Grandpa to our kids. Um, so there was that contingent, and there still is in some of these churches, contingents of people who are old faithfuls. You know, they were there through thick and thin. They don't jump the moment a pastor shows up who's who they don't like the preaching of, or when somebody wounds them with a word. Um, they stay and they're, they're saints, really. I, I think one of the things I've said to people is through all the churches we've been through in the CRC church, each church has had saints, seriously, people who are so holy and have achieved a level in the faith that just makes you reach higher and want to reach higher mm-hmm. and fortifies the soul and is encouraging. And I've seen that over and again, um, not tons. But certainly at every church, there seems to be a, a person or couple that are, are just unbelievable. So appreciated those experiences from the CRC church. Um, yeah, we had, we had a good youth ministry when I was young, really great youth pastor on fire for Jesus and very involved in our lives. That made a massive difference as well. So there's a couple of things. Yeah, that's, and that's, uh, that was probably unusual for, for a CRC church to have a youth pastor at that time, right? Because even now that it's still not a extremely common thing for a CRC church to have a youth yeah. pastor. Yeah. Now that you say it, I think it was quite avant-garde and he was highly instrumental. His name was Bob Miedema in organizing other churches 
in getting youth pastors and really focusing on on the young people. So that was very good. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, that was one of the things that I've I've found interesting, and I and I have some thoughts on it because I was a youth pastor for eleven years, and and mm. I really came into youth ministry. Um, well, ultimately through the call of God, but God, God's call on my life came through my frustration with my lack of youth ministry growing up in high school. I just felt like I was kind of floundering and didn't have anybody helping mm-hmm. me. Yes. And so um, through that, God kind of laid on my heart, well, you go do it then. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but then when I came into the CRC, I started trying to help kind of build youth ministry in the CRC and try to help develop youth pastors in whatever way I could. And I just couldn't find them. And, uh, and the CRC has a history of relying heavily on volunteers, which I think is not a bad thing if you have good volunteers doing it. Um, but, but then also of having just uh, part-time youth ministers, uh, you know, there's, there's very, very few and far between um, full-time youth workers in the CRC. And so what do you, why do you think that is? I don't know. This is not an area I've done a lot of thinking about. And I don't, ha- I don't have the statistics. It would be interesting for me to see exactly what um, contingent of Christian Reformed churches do and do not have youth pastors, and then also do kind of a, an economic uh, look at the churches. I think part of it could be there. it's a full-time position. And uh, in the Christian Reformed Church, we historically have had a commitment to paying our employees uh, a living wage. And obviously that's something I support. So I imagine that a lot of churches, like the smaller church I had back in Webster, we couldn't afford a youth pastor. Um, it was hard enough yeah. just paying the employees and staff that we had. So, in ter- and that was just a full-time pastor. We had some janitorial staff and I think twice a week for a secretary to come in and essentially get the bulletin up and answer some phone calls. So I think that could be a huge factor. Um, other than that, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure either. I, some of it probably comes from, uh, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is we have a lot of good, just faithful small churches who don't have a budget for that. Like mm-hmm. my the church I'm serving right now, um, we don't have a budget to have Very a full-time yeah. youth pastor either. So um, so I, I get that. And I think also there is this history in the, in the Christian Reformed Church, and actually it's still in our church order, that one of the roles of the pastor is to catechize the youth. Uh-huh. And so I, I wonder if if that's still there, that there's an expectation that the pastor is going to, you know, preach twice on a Sunday and then run, teach catechism classes and, and so on and so forth. So why would we hire, hire a youth pastor? (laughs) That could be, Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and so the, obviously the, you know, the role of pastor is kind of changing a little bit, not always in a good way. I don't think, I think we could go back to some of those old ways, but I think there's some of that in there. Um, I think there's some of, uh, well, so I'm a Dutch guy, so I can say it. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely, uh, um, I guess to say it in a nicer way, frugalness to being Dutch, right? You don't want to spend the money on things. You want to try to get as much bang for your buck. And so it's, it's hard to kind of fork out that much money. I've, I've experienced that just being in youth ministry that, where, where my salary. That has salary not been my experience different. here. That's not been my oh. experience here. I mean, most of the churches in the lower mainland that are of mid mid size have a youth pastor. There, there's been a massive commitment around here to uh, securing and having youth pastors. I think there's a couple of smaller churches that don't, but uh, Curtis would be a good guy to talk to about this. I, there's there's a pretty robust habit of uh, youth pastoring here, and it 
I mean, there seems to be a great deal of enthusiasm in terms of, you know, spending the money on a youth pastor. So that well, hasn't been, God. anyways, not here. Yep. Yeah, praise God. Yeah, Curtis is on my list. He will be future interviewed uh, on the Well, there, that's where you got to take all your youth questions out. He likes to read Andy yeah, Root yeah. and so. Yeah. 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 Well, praise God. So, um, one of the one of the things that you mentioned earlier, I want to go back to a little bit sure. because I think it's something we could really um, further develop in the CRC. Is you had mentioned this this strength of uh, this couple that that came and, and supported you in your PhD work, and they said, "Hey, you we we were there when you were baptized, right? You're our you're our kid. Yeah. Um, you're you know we made these commitments to you, and I would I would really love to see that." kind of idea revitalized in our, in our churches. I think we've kind of gotten to the point where baptism is just kind of something that we do. We kind of go through the motions. Um, but, but people don't always understand, see the beauty of it. I've had to describe it to my kids for a while. Cause, um, when I first got married, um, my wife was really devout Catholic when we first got married. And so we had to try to wrestle through some of that for a while. And so my first two kids were baptized in the Catholic church. Cause it just wasn't a fight we were, I was going to fight. And so they've got godparents and my, my younger two kids don't. And they're like, well, why don't we have godparents? And I said, well, actually in our church, the whole congregation is actually your godparents. You don't just have two, you have a whole body of people who are saying we're committed to help raise you in the faith. And they've kind of went, oh, but even when I've mentioned that in churches before, I get kind of a weird look like, oh, we haven't really thought of it that way. So I think there's a power in us Kind there of is. understanding I, this covenantal theology and baptism in a deeper way. I, I was, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to mention that in, in our church, we kind of have um, this covenantal identity. Everybody is supposed to be. But in practice, there is something beautiful about the Catholic tradition. And I wonder if part of the creative thinking that can happen on our side, uh, on our side over here in the Christian Reformed Church is to say, yeah, the whole body is indeed responsible, and they make a promise to use their gifts to raise this child to know the Lord. Nonetheless, what if we had some form or another of godparenting? So I just, in when I was at Webster, I was asked by a couple if I would be their son's godparent. It was the first time. I was a Christian reform boy raised in CRC Church. I didn't know what that was. I said, well, what is that? Well, that means you're going to take special concern for his... I said, well, that's what we do as a whole body. And they said, yeah, but, you know, we just think there's some value into having one person. And I said, okay, fine, I'll do this. But you need to know I'm going to take this role seriously. And so we're going to have a conversation every single year. Well, it's been wonderful because I can't do that to the level I'm now doing it with this individual um, to the whole body. It's just impossible. But I have this really cool kind of pen pal relationship and we videoed last time. We just did a Zoom call together and asked him, how's it going? You know, how's your faith life? How's your, it's, it's more than that. You know, how are you doing? How's school? Blah, blah. But I have, he knows I'm his godfather. And therefore I have the special privilege of asking these special questions. Um, how is it going in your relationship with God? What are you struggling with lately? How's your Bible reading coming? What do you find confusing? What do you find life-giving? So that's been just really wonderful. And I wonder if uh, we we couldn't think of some kind of hybrid model where we do the both. The whole body makes a promise. Yeah, amen. And you designate particular people who are going to take a special interest as an emblem of the body to watch over this child and to, to be their godparent. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Ed Gerber. 
But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock, so keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season, and keep fighting the good fight in this messy Reformation. Thank you.